Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So we're back with the series that we've been working through in the last few weeks or so, where we've been looking at this question of the uh, central challenge of the Christian life to pursue maturity in Christ. And in uh, recent episodes, we've looked at uh, what that maturity is, what it would look like in practice. We've looked at the Christological basis for it, that it is Christ's in the first instance, and therefore secondarily ours as a gift by the Spirit. And now in this uh, week's session, uh, we're back again with uh, recordings from our Wednesday night Bible studies, uh, which I found to be a real blessing just uh, leading those studies and the people who've been there I'm so grateful for you guys and your engagement and interaction, and um, it's certainly been encouraging to me. I hope it's been uh, encouraging to you and also helpful to those of you who are watching or listening to this. This is something of a transition, actually, from the the background theological framework into the practical nitty-gritty of what I'd like to really contribute in this series. But the transition takes the form of an expression of the pastoral heart of my concern that drives this whole enterprise. Um, the inescapable fact is evident to any pastor and actually is probably evident to, to the vast majority of Christians that uh, many Christians grow wonderfully in faithfulness during their lives, but other Christians don't. Uh, some experience long periods of stasis or even regression in their faithfulness and commitment to the Lord. And maybe that's been you. It's certainly been me at various times of my life. I can remember times um, well, a number of years ago, um, as a young man, uh, periods of stasis or even temporary regression in my faithfulness as a believer. And the question just arises, well, okay, why is that and whose responsibility is it to do something about that? And that's really what I want to address in uh, this uh, session. We had a great conversation and discussion in our Bible study on Wednesday night. Um, and uh, I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things um, uh, that... Uh, well, really, they came up towards the end of the Bible study. Um, but just to walk you through what to expect in the next hour or so, um, we talk through a sampling of the kinds of besetting pastoral and uh, Christian life-oriented problems that people experience at various times. And then we turn to Scripture and discover uh, a range of examples of um, instances where people grow wonderfully in their faithfulness in very dramatic and substantial ways or whether suddenly or over time but in also biblical context in which people make no progress at all or little progress or even go backwards in their faithfulness and and the reason for looking at those is to clear out of the way the obvious uh, reasons for some of these things before we go getting subtle and uh, looking more deeply into ourselves and trying to understand some of the more complex reasons why we may not grow as believers in the way that we hope that we would. We need to clear out the way the obvious ones, and those passages hopefully will do that. And then I spent just really a few minutes towards the end of the Bible study on something that I want to speak briefly about now, which is this relationship between um, our responsibility to strive for Christian growth and maturity and God's work in us by the Spirit to bring us to greater growth and maturity. And one way of thinking about this is that it, it presents itself as a theological conundrum. How does God's sovereignty and grace in our salvation, God's unilateral action to work in us by his spirit, how does that cohere with our responsibility and our action in the world? And sometimes it's even posed as a philosophical um, conundrum. Um, it's to do with God's sovereignty and human action or creaturely action, even more abstract. And that's a, a useful a way of thinking about this question, but really the angle I want to um, open up in the discussion 
this e uh, in that I did open up, I hope, a little bit in um, the discussion on Wednesday night that you'll get later in this podcast, is the way that that works out in uh, the life of an individual believer as we seek to grow in faithfulness. And just to put it in a nutshell, there is absolutely no conflict, according to Scripture, between the insistence that it is God who is at work in us to do everything that's good in us, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the insistence in biblical terms that we must strive to grow in faithfulness. We must strive towards repentance. We must strive to live such good lives that uh, though others may accuse us of doing wrong, they will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us, as Peter says. So um, that has at times in the history of the church and indeed in the history, the recent history of the Reformed Church, been a topic on which there has been uh, some debate, um, I'm afraid some ill-informed debate, <coughs> pardon me, where some have wanted to so stress God's gracious action towards us, God's unilateral sovereignty, that they've looked upon any insistence on the necessity of human works, human striving, as just a regression into works righteousness. That is absolutely not what we're talking about here. But more than that, that whole framework is a mistaken framework. The idea that straining towards increased faithfulness entails uh, an admission of or a, an acceptance of works righteousness is completely wrong-headed. And the biblical texts that you will get to at the end of the podcast will, I hope, serve to flesh that out. Um, another way of putting all that um, in a much simpler nutshell form is just to recall Jesus' summary of his own preaching, like at the beginning of Mark's gospel, where uh, he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he tells people to repent and believe. And that is not to be conceived of as, well, you could repent or believe, as though um, repentance isn't really necessary, but believing in Jesus is. The faith that unites us to Christ by which we are made one with him through the Spirit, is repentant faith. Just think about that for one second. The, the thing that takes place within us, by which we're made one with Jesus, by which we share in all that he has, including his maturity, including his faithfulness, including his holiness, the thing that is in us that unites us with him is faith. That's the thing that you see in yourself, that you perceive in fact, it's the way that you perceive Christ when the Spirit of God is at work in you to unite you with Jesus and grant you a share in all that he is and has. And what's the kind of faith that does that? It is not faithless faith. It is not unrepentant faith. It is not uncommitted faith, but repentant faith. Repentant faith, in other words, are two sides of the same coin. And whereas repentance is uh, a way of pointing to our striving towards God, which itself is a gift of God. God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto, unto life. Think of the book of Acts. Uh, faith, on the other hand, is uh, more typically conceived of as that gift of God by which we acquire that disposition towards Christ, which is, from our perspective, the work of the Spirit in us. So um, you can think of it in those theological terms. The simplest way to think about it, I think, is just to... Uh, Remember that faith and repentance, as far as Jesus taught and as far as Scripture teaches, are two sides of the same coin. In fact, you may even know that um, the word faith, pistis in Greek, is the same as the word for faithfulness. There isn't even the semantic distinction between faith and faithfulness. 
in the language of the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter. So what we're talking about when we talk about our responsibility to strive towards increasing maturity in Christ is simply the flip side of our recognition that that's how God is at work in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Think of um, Philippians 2. So all of that is around the corner and just in the next hour or so as you're listening to the rest of this podcast, I hope you're finding it useful. Um, uh, may the Lord bless you as you uh, uh, listen on, as you uh, pursue um, maturity in Christ with us and as you're listening to this series. I hope it's helpful to you. The Lord bless you and bye for now. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for one another, for this time you've blessed us with, for your word, the Bible, for our fellowship in Christ, for the peace that we enjoy, and particularly when we find ourselves in the position that we do now with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, people that uh, many of us have met, uh, pastors whom we've heard preach, uh, fellow saints whose ministry uh, we've uh, heard of in the past and have even supported in various ways. We hear of them uh, not enjoying peace as such as we have. Uh, we ask for your mercy to be poured out upon them. We pray you'd uh, stay the hand of the wicked men who are responsible for and involved in this invasion of Ukraine. Put an end to the war and bring peace and safety to that region. Uh, even as you uphold the believers in their ministry to one another and to people who seek their help. We pray that in different ways the CREC's support for those churches might reach beyond the walls of those churches. And despite the horrors that are going on there, we may in months and years ahead see uh, good things being brought from this evil by your grace. And now, Father, we ask for your mercy upon us now. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your law. For we come to your word seeking to be taught and instructed and changed. And we ask, therefore, for your Spirit's help in doing this. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alrighty, so let me just begin with a quick uh, update so you, um, you realise where we got to. I think you probably know most of you. Um, this series of Bible studies began with a men's discipleship breakfast uh, about a month and a bit ago, where I talked through this quite uh, detailed and long and small print handout called uh, entitled Pursuing Maturity in Christ. And what we've been doing in these Bible studies is uh, going through it one or two paragraphs at a time, basically trying to drill down a bit more deeply into it and to um, expound the themes that I drew attention to there. That's, that's like an overview, 30,000-foot summary kind of thing. And um, what I think it's helpful to do is both to, to seek to justify biblically and explore theologically the claims and uh, suggestions I'm making in it. Um, so uh, today we're getting to, well, on the original document, it is the fourth, fifth, and sixth paragraphs, which we're going to try and do all in one go. We must be mad. We did like two sentences in the first week, but we're going to try. And really, we get today to the heart of the pastoral concern that prompted me to speak on this subject in the first place. Um, it will become evident what the nature of that concern is in detail in the next few minutes. But suffice it to say that um, as pastors, Pastor Neil and I, like all pastors, want to help, uh, well, first ourselves, because there's no use if we're not growing in our faith. We can't help you if we're not growing as believers. Uh, and then uh, 
principally in relation to our vocation, we want to help you guys grow in maturity and faithfulness in Christ. And the simple fact is that we are blessed with the privilege of seeing many people grow wonderfully in all kinds of different ways and troubled deeply by the fact that that doesn't happen sometimes. Uh, and we don't want to see people just sort of stuck in a rut. And that warrants some careful thought. And in one sense, the task of pastoral ministry uh, and actually the responsibility that we all share to one another, as we considered when we looked at one of the earlier paragraphs, is to figure out what can I do to help myself, help the brother or sister in Christ next to me or opposite me, to grow in faithfulness so that we don't get stuck in these spiritual ruts, so to speak, but continue to grow. So the, the question that I pose in the title has two parts. Why is Christian growth sometimes slow or non-existent? And then secondly, who is responsible for doing something about it? Let me summarize the answer because there's a lot of stuff here and we, it would be helpful just to have a, a big headline so that we know where we're going. Christian growth proceeds slowly or not at all for many, many, many different reasons. And tonight I'm going to point out some of the obvious ones with the help of some texts of Scripture. But that will leave unspoken some other reasons which we'll come to in future weeks. Suffice it to say that um, there are some basic things which, like, if we're not doing those right, that's a very simple reason why we're not growing in our faith. If you never come to church or never read the Bible, I mean, well, you know, there we are. Um, I, I guarantee, just take one example. I guarantee that no model for pastoral care, for discipleship, for Christian growth, for increasing faithfulness, for growing in maturity, no model in the universe can ever have any positive fruit if you're not regularly coming to church, for example. Like, you just forget about the possibility of even remaining mildly stable and not regressing as a believer in Christ. It's like trying to stay alive without breathing. You just cannot do it. Um, so there are some basic things which we just need to say and get them out on the table just so we've cleared the decks for the things that may be harder to identify and work, work through. And then in response to the second part of the question, just briefly, uh, we are responsible. And uh, we need to articulate that very, very strongly because sometimes people are nervous because they feel like to say that we are responsible for our Christian growth some, somehow takes away from God's sovereignty or from the necessity of prayer or from the fact that we can't do anything in and of ourselves. And of course, all those things are true. God is sovereign. We must pray. We can't do anything in and of ourselves. But scripture does not ever, ever, ever set those uh, biblical principles against the idea that we should strive personally to grow in faithfulness. Uh, in fact, it, quite the contrary, it puts them alongside one another. And so if we can see tonight that there are lots of things that we could be doing wrong and we've got to fix them straight away before it goes getting more complicated, and then secondly, we've got to be ready to, to turn up the gas on our own commitment if we want to solve either those or more deep-rooted problems, then tonight will have been useful. So let me read the, the summary in the grey box. I've condensed the three previous paragraphs into one little tiny paragraph because I don't want to get stuck, you know, before even the topic for tonight arises. Then I'm going to read that longer, bold section, and then we'll work through um, a few bits and pieces and then see what we get to. And as ever, by the way, I, I'm conscious that 
my danger is I just talk all the time. So if you have any questions at any point, please stick a paw in the air and um, I'll stop at the most convenient moment and, um, and we can pick up whatever questions or comments you have. Right, so here goes. Summary. The Christian faith is all about pursuing maturity in Christ, that is, Christ-likeness in every area of life. Christ himself is the perfect, mature man, and he has bestowed his maturity on us as a gift by the Spirit. He now calls us to exhibit this gift in increasing measure and promises that we may expect to make significant progress as we seek to do so. That's the summary so far. Right, what are we doing tonight? Here goes. As pastors, I confidently speak for Pastor Neil and every other pastor I've ever met, we address various aspects of this maturity very frequently in different contexts in sermons bible studies podcasts personal conversations and in prayer with and for god's people by god's grace we sometimes see believers making significant progress uh, let me tell you it's just wonderful i was talking to actually becky last night we had a daddy and daughter date last night because nicole's away in san antonio with her parents so i said it's date night i need somebody to go on a date with who'll go it's like so becky's like i'll go so we went and had um fried chicken and we were just talking about she said talk tell me about some of the people who you've known who've who've really really grown in their faith and it was just wonderful thinking back over the the my years not that many years over a decade as a pastor and thinking of all the people that the lord has worked wonderfully in but not always indeed sometimes people seem to make no progress at all or even regress substantially over time and no amount of prayer teaching encouragement or exhortation seems to make much difference Even direct one-to-one pastoral counselling sometimes has no effect, despite the fact that this approach allows issues to be addressed clearly, specifically, and forcefully, and often despite the apparent commitment of the counsellee. Now, that's the thing that really got me thinking about this. What's going on when somebody actually really wants to grow in some particular area of their life? And they come to you, and they take time off work, and they... They sit down and they just ask, and, we, and you, it's not like they lack commitment, it seems. So what's happening in a person's heart and life when that doesn't produce great fruit? This lack of progress provokes a range of responses from resignation and despair on the one hand to a never-ending treadmill of trying harder on the other, none of which generally improve the situation. These observations prompt a cluster of significant pastoral and theological questions. What accounts for these dramatic variations in the degree of growth towards maturity among believers? To be sure, it's likely that some people are more prayerful than others, just statistically, you know. People are different. Or more deeply soaked in scripture, or more committed to Christ, or more self-disciplined, or blessed with wiser counsellors. Perhaps the Spirit in his sovereign wisdom chooses to distribute his sanctifying grace unevenly. Perhaps God is just gracious to different people. Maybe he's just really, really gracious in some cases, and that's what we see. Who knows? But are there other factors at work as well? And crucially, what can be done to help those who struggle? There is a genuinely a, a note of pastoral self-examination here. Like I'm, I'm genuinely, genuinely trying to understand how to do my job better. But since my job is also, to a degree, all of our jobs, you know, we're all equipped to counsel and encourage one another. I'm trying to help us all to do that. It's clearly inappropriate simply to accept these differences without seeking to understand what might be done about them. This matters too much, apart from anything else. You don't just accept that 
the roof of your house blows off in a force three breeze when everybody else's seems to manage to withstand a force seven gale, do you? You, you don't accept that. Because the, the consequences are so ruinous if you do so. We, things that matter warrant careful scrutiny. And our faith in Christ and our faithfulness to him certainly matter. Of course, the Lord remains sovereign over every aspect of our lives, but this never justifies passivity on our part. And we'll come to this at the end today, Lord willing. On the contrary, and then see if you can spot the allusions to biblical texts here. There are four texts alluded to in these next four clauses. We are commanded to work out our salvation, even while recognizing that it is God who is at work in us. To put sin to death, even while we recognize that the old man was crucified with Christ. To fan into flame our gifts, even while we recognize that all our abilities come from God. And to pursue holiness, even while we recognize that it is God who sanctifies, that is God who makes holy. So, all those biblical texts are at the bottom of the next page. So, so that's the summary. That's what I want to talk about tonight. And what I'm going to do first is um, give you a sampling of some of the, the sins and aspects of immaturity I have in mind. Um, and then we'll talk through... Um, some biblical perspectives on the other aspects of this question. Let me pause there, though. Any comments so far? Any questions? Anything you want to just pick up? All happy? All right. Let me um, then do the kind of thing that a, a car mechanic might do when you go and explain to him that you're planning to buy a particular car. Right. If, you, if you have a friend who's a car mechanic, um, and uh, one or two cars I've owned, I wish I'd asked a car mechanic this kind of question before I bought it. But um, we're very pleased with the ones we've got at the moment, by the way. American cars. So maybe that's the lesson, right? Um, anyway, um, a great car mechanic will say, well, look, this is the stuff you need to watch out for. If you buy this model, you want to watch out for this and you want to watch out for that. I had a car mechanic in, in England who's great. We had a Nissan Almera. He said that... You don't know what a Nissan Almira is, do you? It's a, it's a Nissan, okay? It's unspectacular hatchback. Um, and he said, it's, it's great, it's very reliable, you've just got to keep making sure you change the oil regularly, because if you don't, it gets acidic, and the timing chain stretches, and then the whole engine needs to be dismantled, spend £3,000, like $4,000, to change a part that's worth $50, and the car's basically written off if you don't change the oil. So he's telling us what to watch out for, what could go wrong. Let me tell you some of the things that go wrong when you take on this project of being a believer in Christ. A sampling of routine, that by which I mean, um, if you don't find yourself on this list, you can probably just go straight to heaven now and wait for the resurrection, okay? <laughs> this, is, this is like everybody is somewhere on this list. But potentially crippling pastoral problems. Besetting sins, many different kinds of things can uh, ensnare us here. Um, the advent of technologies that are specifically designed to hack your brain and render less effective the normal powers of resistance to temptation hasn't helped but it's really just exacerbated a problem that's always been there we've always been tempted and sometimes you you find yourself sort of spurred to action i've got to do something about whatever it is and then that lasts about six weeks and then you kind of go cold a bit and you just resign yourself to well maybe i'm just the kind of person who you know this is just me All right marital tension of all different kinds, poor communication, lack of intimacy, lack of trust, lack of mutual respect, lack of just lack of time together, which is partly just because we're busy, but partly because we don't make time. 
um, you get to the point sometimes where people, like, they really do cohabit. You know, they, they, they sleep in the same space and they have a joint mortgage, but so much of their lives is not intertwined. And that builds over time and is sometimes just terrible to untangle. Family strife, well, um, I remarked uh, recently that what, what having children does is to amplify what you are as a married couple. Anything that's not right with a marriage will be exacerbated as soon as children come along because of the extra demands and strain that children place on a household. Correspondingly, anything that's great about your marriage will be amplified by having children. If you love spending time together as a couple and a kid comes along, it's just great because you have you know, somebody else to be with. Um, but just the demands of children and the discipline issues that routinely arise, and it's not just teenagers, it's everybody. In. And then um, handling all the inputs from th- th- those corners of the world that you wouldn't choose to have your children immersed in, but which, in the end, you can't entirely sequester them from. Sometimes um, people struggle with what amounts to a kind of persistent relational immaturity, and often they don't realize that this is a problem. Other people realize. Um, But just the inability to um, respond in the normal kind of way to normal social cues is not just a a psychological problem. It's a problem of Christian maturity. And and the, the opposite end of that spectrum is the right kind of empathy, somebody who can really sense somebody else's need for a particular kind of interaction. Um, And I wonder if the increasing disembodiment of our social interactions is making us less intuitively empathetic. Empathy can be overrated, by the way. Empathy isn't the solution to everything. Sometimes you need a good kick. But... (laughs) but, um, uh, I think that there is a kind of sensitivity, which is a Christian virtue, uh, which sometimes people don't have, and then lots of their relationships go sideways, and they don't know why. Um, uh, mental health problems, which sometimes are, uh, are just sort of straight clinical hormonal, but other, often are the fruit of other factors, like they're, they're how you existentially experience the results of many of these other things. Uh, including destructive habits of eating, exercise, smartphone use, and so on. It's, I was talking to somebody just this week, actually, and we were just reflecting on um, the, different, the differences between the world that we inhabit and a more, let's call it primitive, agrarian or pre-industrial world. And it's not just that now you have a smartphone and your boss can email you at any time of the day or night. But there's, there's just so much more in terms of demand that can be placed upon us by all of the things that we're able to do. Our our lives are are more complicated, actually. Um, And in order, it feels to me as though in order to handle those complexities of life, we just need to be more switched on about it. Otherwise, life just drives you. And sometimes you notice this with mums of young children. The first kid or two comes along and they just feel totally overwhelmed. And, And what's actually happened is they've They've got on this treadmill and they're being driven by everything else and, and um, there's always something to do and they don't feel able to control their time or their children's sleep or their own eating. And you see mums, and sometimes, this happened to us sometimes, and Nicole would get exhausted towards the end of the day and I'd say, well, what did you eat today? And she's like, oh, yeah. Because <laughs> you're just running around changing diapers and, and 
stuff. And um, yeah, so just just the the complexity, the number of things we try to do, place demands upon us, which is great if you can accomplish all those things. Well, wonderful to have a uh, a life in which we you run a business and you have children and you have a home that you're able to maintain and uh, you have lots of relationships and you serve in the church. And you, wonderful if you can do that, but it does take some organization. If you don't have that, then the wheels will come flying off and it, all kinds of chaos will ensue. Um, lack of basic Christian disciplines, prayer, Bible reading, vocational incapacity. I, I included that phrase on the um, original handout for the men's discipleship thing. And it's a slightly clunky way of saying People who just don't know how to do a job. Um, <laughs> I was listening today. really interesting. Hands up if you've heard of um, redballoon.work. Come across that? Yeah, oh, yeah, it's great. I'm glad you heard it. So Andrew Krapachets, um, formerly uh, CEO of um, Economic Modeling Systems, some, MZ, EMSI, up in Moscow, Idaho. So he, they, they were taken over, and he quit, and was well, he left, basically. I think they, hostile takeover bid, which is unfortunate, I think. That's what happened. Anyway, but he's, I think he's quite happy, because he's got a whole bunch of other projects he wanted to do, and one of them was to set up this um, uh, jobs website called Red Balloon um, for um, people who want to find a job where they won't be wokeified every <laughs> moment of the day. So companies, companies that just want to hire somebody... Who is, who wants a job, like not a political pulpit, who just, you know, I want to fix HVAC systems. Please can I find a job in a company that services HVAC systems that isn't going to require me to uh, have a whole bunch of medications I don't want to have and go through a whole bunch of sensitivity and implicit bias trainings that I don't think I need and which would, don't work anyway, and if they did, they would do harm. And so he's got hundreds of companies signed up, advertising jobs. He said, I listened to this interview, he's got, he had 700,000 people have visited the site looking for work. So it's awesome, it's going really well. And, and a couple of times he said, you know, we, um, it's for companies who want people who just want to do a good job, give value to their customers. Now, it's really interesting. We might think that the incapacity to do that is a peculiarly progressive thing and is the fruit of being distracted by ideological movements in a woke direction or a progressive direction. And absolutely that's happening. But Andrew Krapachets is not a pastor, and it's not his fault. But I wonder what he'd think if he saw what some pastors see, which is lots of people who are not ideologically progressive, not who are kind of Christians and conservative and just, and you'd think they just want to do a good job, but they don't seem to be able to do so. But there are some people who, for reasons other than political progressivism, don't seem to be able to hold down a job for six months. A friend of mine, in fact, you, you've heard me talk about him, and some of you have met him, David Field. Uh, after he, um, after he uh, left Oak Hill College where he taught, he went back to a recruitment consultancy. As a, uh, um, he, no, he called it executive search consultancy, not recruitment consultancy, sorry. Anyway, but he was trying to find high-level academic uh, staff for universities. 
And he had a phrase which he used of people who looked promising but would not work out well. The phrase was TMJ, too many jobs. And I said, what's wrong with that? And he said, well, if somebody's moved six months here, eight months there, four months there, one year there, six months there, the likelihood that they've always left on their own impetus is quite slim. And it's something that uh, I, I think especially men, but not just men, need to be aware of. Can you just do a job for 10 years? You, you, you will earn the right to talk with your colleagues about your faith in Jesus after you've been there for five. But right now, we sell used cars. Right now, we, we service air conditioning. Please just do the job excellently. And, and what I mean by this vocational incapacity is there's something in the reformed Christian mindset that wants to make a difference in the world, which is good, but has forgotten that doing a great job for 10 years makes a difference in the world. If you're just a brilliant air conditioning salesman, or you put roofs on that last longer than everybody else's roofs, or you sell more used cars than all the other salesmen in the garage, that's great. That's making a difference. You don't need to... Okay, if you have opportunity to speak of your faith or to um, shape the ideological environment in which you work in some more direct or explicit way, great, go ahead and do so. But let's make sure we're doing the basics. Like, Be the best, whatever it is you're doing, in your company. And do it for 10 years. And that's just a... That's not me saying put aside your Christian faith. It's me saying express your Christian faith. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Okay, so I've spoken a bit about that because I think it's something we haven't talked about much and maybe you want to ask. Anyway, any questions so far before we flip over the page? Questions, comments? Yeah, go ahead. At some point, are, is, is it appropriate to ask whether there is, and, and I'm not putting this up as an excuse, but whether there are meta factors or even like redemptive historical factors. I think of like Ezekiel 36 and 37, Jeremiah 31, pointing to a time when you wouldn't think somebody would have these kinds of individual problems. Mm. Um, and so I just, but, but even like, even if you came, even if you, you took it a couple of steps down and you were just thinking in terms of certain dominant cultures, I mean, I'm thinking about our time in Mexico, for example. Yeah, yeah. And people that we've worked with and trends that we've seen within maybe smaller groups of cultural snapshots of history. I mean, these are, these are largely individual sort of things that we're going to be dealing with on an individual familial level, but is there something to, is there something to keeping in mind the flow of history, where we're at in the yeah. kingdom and that sort of thing? Not to make excuses, but to at least help explain some of this? Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting question. So let me just paraphrase it for the sake of the folks at home. Um, th- th- these are comments about individual discipleship issues. What difference might the progress of redemptive history and the different cultural histories of different places at different times make to our expectations? I mean, it's interesting the way you phrased it. It's as though you thought that, that those things might excuse poor performance. I think actually the, the opposite is the case. There's, there's a case for saying that the gift of the Spirit 
radically transforms in a positive direction the expectations we should have of ourselves. And sometimes people notice this in reverse. When they notice that the man after God's own heart only slept with some other guy's wife, had the husband basically deliberately killed in the battle, and then kind of went on to rule Israel for a few decades, and nobody seemed to think this was inappropriate, whereas you'd never have a pastor who did that. It's kind of odd, isn't it? I, um, when we look at Romans 6, you'll, you'll see this, uh, and I think you probably know where it's coming from anyway. Um, the, the gift of the Spirit does genuinely transform what we are supposed to be capable of being like. You, you'd ex- it's one of the reasons, actually, that I'm, it's one of the factors, sorry, that underlies discussions like the issues of polygamy in Genesis and elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's not that polygamy was ever allowed. No, 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 no. no. But it is true that Acts 17, in the past, God overlooked or winked at such ignorance. Not because, it, not because he thought it was okay. Not because he thought it was acceptable. It's still a sin. Just read Genesis. Obviously, it's a sin. But the progress of redemptive history, and especially the coming of the new covenant age in Christ and the gift of the Spirit, draws a line in history and removes the, not that it would ever have been an excuse, but the, the, the um, explanation for some of the depravity that seems to be accepted among the old covenant people of God. Um, now, so that's a salvation historic point, and that's one that probably warrants some detailed discussion, and we, we had down that, called this that will be gone for some time, but we can talk about it another time. Now, the cultural point is a corollary of it. Like, you're, and you've got experience living in Mexico, which is a predominantly Roman Catholic-influenced country. Um, I forget who it was who... who Put, put countries on a taxonomy of historically Protestant, historically Roman Catholic, and historically not Christian. And you just look at what life is like in those countries now. So historically Protestant countries tend to be uh, the most economically well-developed, and at least within their legal framework, if not in modern, in the last couple of decades or so, to have a standard of public morality where certain high expectations at various points in the last few decades have been have been in existence. Historically, Catholic countries have often had the higher social expectations, but lower economic development. And sometimes that economic development has allowed increasing crime on an epic scale. Um, and you actually get that in some parts of formerly like Protestant countries like America now. You get to LA, I was hearing about the other day that they, you know, rich people are just being robbed in broad daylight in the streets. People are hiring private security to walk around LA, you know. But then you have countries like Somalia, which has never been Christian for hundreds of years. And it's just, to say life is brutal, it just doesn't even come close. So, uh, and Muslim countries similarly, where if you have economic prosperity, it's because you have a large state oil company like Saudi. Um, so I think, yes, you can see the cultural effects of... Um, a, the, the, yeah, of sorry, the local national effects, local and national effects of a, a Christian culture historically, um, which is the historic outworking of the, the work of the Spirit 
in those places. Um, and it's, it kind of corresponds to what you'd expect because you've got pagan, the third category. Second category, you've got confessing Christian, though no Protestant work ethic or not so deeply ingrained. And then in the first category, you've got the confessing Christian and the Protestant work ethic and the valuing of secular vocations, which is why you get... Yeah. Just so, so with the line in the sand, the Pentecostal line in the sand, right. are we still leaving... I mean, is there still something to be said for here in another 60,000 years when Christians have grown? They've maybe yes. grown... Yes, I, th- I think there's. You you want to be able to make an argument for a, a progressive eschatology in this age, which is not just numerical. So yeah. postmill gives you numerical, but it gives you more than that. It, um, so yeah, I think that's right. So you could anticipate in ten thousand years time if Jesus hasn't returned people looking back at how Christians behave, the standards that we had for personal conduct in the last 2,000 years and being somewhat dismayed at what we allowed ourselves to think was acceptable. But that's not an excuse for now. It's not an excuse for now, and, and, and neither is the... I'm trying to get out. No, sure it isn't. And neither there's a transition... Hope for some of us who are str- you know, yeah, yeah. But, it, but, it's, but it's, it's, a, it's hope in the sense of a... A concrete expectation of what life could be, you know. Um, Mrs. Bennett, you had your hand up. Forgive me. Um, the thing that doesn't fit the Protestant influence is abortion. Yeah, yeah, and so exactly, abortion shatters the happy visage of that kind of threefold taxonomy. And there are other things as well, um, like woke socialism and so on. But you're right, and and so that's why. Um, you, the correct way to see history is not simply monotonic and linear, but recurring death and resurrection. Um, abortion is such a heinous sin that it could be the thing on account of which, regardless of what happens next, America and Britain and Western Europe crumble into some kind of dark age for a few hundred years. In God's providence, that's what he could do. And that would not be the end of the church. It would be the death of that particular era of the church. And death and resurrection is how God's always done things. So um, think of history, whatever the y-axis is, the x-axis is time, it's like a sawtooth. Death and resurrection, death and resurrection, death and resurrection. Um, Sometimes in people's lives individually, in all of our lives, week by week and day by day. And then sometimes extended over years, um, and some crisis happens, and you, you really struggle to deal with it for three or four years, and then you're working your way out of it four or five years later, and realizing, yeah, yeah, I've been brought to a renewed self-awareness and wisdom and maturity through that horror that I experienced. Um, many of us have probably had times like that. Um, bereavement is often one such, or a job loss or something. Yeah, so death and resurrection is the shape of history. If you're a mathematician... Um, it will help me to say that history is fractal. You then think of who's done. You know, who knows what a fractal is? Yeah, all the mathematicians. Yeah. So, so the Mandelbrot set is kind of self-similar on multiple length scales. So, death and resurrection by days, weeks, months, years, centuries, and so on. 
just like the, the exile and the return. Exactly, exactly. And, and you see it patterned again and again and again and again in history, in individual people's lives, Jacob, Abraham, or yeah, David, etc., etc., etc. Okay. So that was good. No, we've still got hope of actually finishing this handout today if nobody else asks any more questions. Sorry. That was a joke. It's okay. Mr. Robinson, that's fine. Sorry. Okay, so flip over the page. Um, <laughs> I so want to finish a Bible study on time and cover all the material I plan to cover. That would be like a first. Can we throw a party if I do that? We all get ice for ice cream if, we, if I succeed. All right. What accounts for the dramatic differences between believers? Okay, so look, there are some basic things. I'm not listing here everything. But there are some instances in Scripture where you either see significant growth or a disappointing lack of growth or total catastrophe, and it is obvious why. So before we go getting into the material that's later on in this um, uh, handout that I shared with all of you and, and the men at the Men's Discipleship Breakfast, like we've just got to do the basic things. Um, I, I didn't even mention on here, but I did mention earlier, like, if somebody isn't coming to church regularly and they're wondering why they're not growing as a Christian, well, it's like, there's nothing anybody can do if somebody won't do that. Just That's just it. But there's more. So um, we're going to look briefly at these things, get your fingers kind of warmed up. Luke 19 is, of course, the account of Zacchaeus. Well, here's a man who experienced some kind of significant change. And I'm not going to read through this in detail, but let me... What I'll do is I'll, I'll go through a couple of these, pause, see if you've got any comments, and then we'll just keep going and see how fast we can go. So Jesus um, is walking past uh, Jericho. There's a man called Zacchaeus. who's a chief tax collector, very rich. And so historians differ over what the tax collectors did. But basically, they ripped off their fellow Jews by using the Roman power that represents the authority they worked for to extort more than they were entitled to, which is why John the Baptist castigates them for taking more than they're entitled to. Um, and uh, so they were hated by everybody apart from other tax collectors. Um, and this man is clearly convicted of his uh, sin, and also he wants to see Jesus. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. And in Luke's Gospel, that's like really code for more than... He just wants to see what he looks like. I wonder what colour hair he's got. No, he wants to see Jesus. He wants to know him. And so he's desperately running on ahead, but he's a little fella... And so he has to climb up a sycamore tree to see him. I mean, he must have looked a right muppet, don't you think? Stuck up in the tree. What's rich old Zacchaeus doing up there? Stupid little... Mm-mm, mm-mm. Somebody throw a rock at him, anyway. Um, and when Jesus came to the place, he walked, he's got a crowd of people around him, and he, and he said to Zacchaeus, come down, I've got to stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully, and when... They saw it, all the crowds. They all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, half of my goods I'm going to give to the poor, just to be on the safe side. And if anybody actually um, identifies that I've defrauded them, I'm going to repay them fourfold, which is the, uh, the, the tariff in Exodus 23 or 22. Somewhere between 21 and 23. I think it's 22 versus 1 and 2. Um, it's the tariff if somebody steals a sheep. So that's kind of uh, a good thing to do. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house because this man also is a son of Abraham because the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So you can see a bunch of things that Zacchaeus did. He wanted Jesus. He didn't mind looking a bit of an idiot to, to find a way to him. He left what he was doing. Presumably he'd been tax collecting the rest of that week, but he thought, I want to go and see Jesus. Um, 
there's a certain um, shameless expectation of the possibility of being welcomed by Jesus. And as soon as Jesus says the word, he hurries down and he seems, he seems not to be embarrassed by the fact that really he's a, a really wicked man. Um, and, but he's going to receive the grace of Christ. And, and then, obviously, repentance with teeth. Um, I've, I've told the story before of the, um, the young man at university when I was a student who became a Christian, and he spent the next week returning to all the bars in Oxford, all the stuff that he'd stolen from them, you know, trophies from the walls, pictures. He had a, he had a rowing oar hanging on the, the, the wall of his room, which he'd stolen from another college. And he spent a week taking all this stuff back and apologizing. Repentance, see? First um, Corinthians 9, oh, sorry, 6, verses 9 to 11. Here's another example of somebody or a group of people who, unlike Zacchaeus, who it looks like he's becoming a Christian, these people are believers, but boy, do they have something to deal with. First um, Corinthians 6. Um, uh, Paul remarks, not remarks, Paul declares, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor, look at this list, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So what happened? Well, you were washed, you were just sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So um, the Corinthian church is in a complete mess, obviously. But there are some people there who really have experienced dramatic transformation. Consider the significant transformation that a man needs to undergo in order to stop living a homosexual lifestyle. That's a really significant, dramatic transformation. Probably the form that lifestyle took in ancient Corinth is different from modern America. Um, But nonetheless, it's a lifestyle that needs leaving behind. And all of these things are indicative of lifestyles, idolatry, sexual immorality more generally, and so on. So here you've got some believers who just, God is at work in them really dramatically. Now, you can change, apparently. Let me do one more. First Thessalonians 1. Um, the, the, the companion passage in Acts 17 is the account of Paul going to, to Thessalonica, um, which we'll look, I'll look at that briefly in a second because we'll look at the next bit in Berea. But um, First Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, Notwithstanding the negative reception that Paul got from some of the Jewish synagogue folks, he got a really positive reception from some in Thessalonica. First Thessalonians 1 verse 4. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you, because our gospel came to you in, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You're not kind of men. We proved to, me, to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So you became an example to all these other believers. And besides that, verse uh, um, 8, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. So whenever we go anywhere, people are telling us about you because of the change that the Lord Jesus Christ has made in your life. So again, here what you've got are some basic things. They received the word. That's something new, isn't it? They listened. Not all of the Jewish people in Thessalonica were 
rebellious and hostile to Paul. These people, they just listened and they took it in and they thought about it and reflected on it deeply and they applied it to their own lives. And then they looked at Paul and his companions and they're thinking, well, that's what it takes to be a Christian. We want to live like that. And it seems that, for example, some in Thessalonica were needed encouragement to, to start working a bit harder, you know, and some other things. Um, the Thessalonians didn't have a great reputation for nobility, unlike the people of Berea that Paul went to next in Acts 17. But anyway, whatever it was, the Thessalonians saw something in the lifestyle of these men who preached Christ to them and thought, we want to be like that. We want to hear their words and we want to speak their gospel and trust their gospel and follow the Lord Jesus. So can you start to see? You'll get, these are the basic things, right? If you're not doing this, let's not try and make anything complicated. This is, these are the marks of people who grow dramatically and wonderfully in their faith. Uh, one quick story before we jump on. Um, the, there's um, one lovely family, uh, the church I was at in London. I thought of this when Becky asked me yesterday. Um, uh, the husband was, they started coming to Emmanuel. They'd been going to another church, which had been a bit of a troublesome time for them. They started coming to Emmanuel and they were quite quiet and they started to settle down and they noticed um, some differences between the other children in the church and their own children. And so the husband, who was an engineering contractor, he used to basically get a new contract every three or six months. One contract came to an end and he didn't renew it. He took three months off work to spend with his family to sort his family life out. I was like, wow. And it's not like he's Mr. Fix-It. He was just conscious that he couldn't... There was some urgency about this. He had a couple of children, delightful children. Um, but he thought, I'd, I'd, I'd like just to get my family life shaped in a, in, a, in a new way. It's going to involve some financial sacrifice. Now, not everybody could do that. But it's indicative of the kind of commitment that that man showed when he realized, like the Thessalonians, I, th- I think, I genuinely think he, he saw some things that he really liked in some of the other families at church and thought, by God's grace, we'll strive for that. He didn't just think, well, I'll pray about it. You know? uh, discipleship has a price tag sometimes. Any questions, comments? Let's, let's keep going and fill in some more of these pictures. Um, Acts 17. Uh, I alluded to this earlier because, of course, you know the, um, the account of Paul visiting Thessalonica and getting beaten up, and well, they tried to beat him up there to escape um, because the Jewish people, after three weeks of hearing Paul preach, they thought, hold on, <laughs> this, this guy's getting more followers than we have. So some of the Jews in the synagogue were jealous, formed a rabble, etc., etc., chased Paul away and So the brothers, verse 10, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, where they arrived and went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, those Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they contrasted not with the believers in Thessalonica, but with the rowdy rabble of Jewish leaders who who drove Paul and Silas away. It seems that all of the Jews in the synagogue in, in Berea were more thoughtful and their their nobility as paul as luke describes it in the book of acts consisted in quote they received the word with all eagerness first and then second examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so there's a degree of 
taking responsibility for one's own understanding and growth. And I, I've actually uh, often wanted to encourage people to um, yeah, ex- you know, have your Bibles open when I'm preaching and when Pastor Neil is preaching, not to check in the kind of, in the, the high-minded sense. None of us want to be like that, do we? Where, you know, you could become a professional critic of other people's teaching. That's not... But one of, one of the men who taught me a lot about preaching said, you should be preaching like this, really. You should be like this. Like, can you see? Let me show you. Can you see it? That's, that should be the spirit of our of our preaching. That's what he's encouraging me and the guys I was mentored with. And I found it profoundly helpful because what it, I think what it does is it encourages this sense that we're all around the Bible together. We all want to hear the word of Christ. We, all of us get things wrong or misstate things or miss things out. And so it's appropriate sometimes to pause for questions and say, got any questions? Sorry, got any questions? Any comments or any thoughts? Yeah, Mrs. Clackon. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, do you think that a lack of self-truthfulness or reverse self-deception is what keeps people from growing or regresses them? And that, like, Zacchaeus saw his sin, the Bereans wanted to see the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That he himself reflected on to say, we're not doing that. Your friend said, I'm not like this. Yeah, Our yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, truth telling to yourself. Do you all hear what Mrs. Clackwon said? Um, ha- it's really significant to have this willingness to be honest with yourself. Um, since I began this series of studies, and I asked the men at the discipleship breakfast, um, if, if you want to come to me and talk about any of these things please do and a a number of people have what's been really interesting is that a couple of guys we've had conversations and i just said listen i think what'd be really good would be if you were to write down where you are and in in the areas that you've identified and then tell me where you want to be so so you send me a quick email doesn't need to be long i had one thing it was four pages word process document one of our brothers or sisters in christ cares so passionately and is willing to be so honest and it moves me to tears thinking about it because I, and I, I emailed back and said this is this must have been really hard work well done and it's that kind of honesty um, rather than saying well you know we believe in Jesus and everything's not going too badly to think no this is this is how my marriage isn't great and this is how uh, my personal Bible reading isn't great, and uh, sometimes with the kids I'm a bit this, that, and the other goes wrong. Let me try and be as specific as I can. And that's just so promising because it means that right now we've identified where we're asking for the Spirit to work, and we can start to, and we'll get to this towards the end, we can start to walk in step with the spirit in those kinds of if if you've identified something really specific we can pray about that thing and then we can work on that thing and it's much easier than just saying i need to be more godly you know so yeah absolutely that honesty is so so critical to all this you know so thank you yeah 
Uh, a hand up from the back from Uriah. Is this you or is this is the Zoomers? Somebody on the Zoom. Yeah, go ahead. Right. The question is, in marriage, should we consider our maturities as individuals or should we evaluate ourselves as individuals and as a unit? Right. In marriage, in, are we talking about maturity of ourselves as individuals or uh, as a couple as well? I mean, the answer's got to be both. Um, I think what I would say is that there are some things which it's helpful to talk about together and other things which actually might be unhelpful to talk about together, but sometimes it's helpful to talk with somebody, like a pastor or a friend. Um, and there are, there's a good case to be made for saying, you know, I'll sit down with a husband and say, look, let's just work on the things that are all about you. Give that a month, and then let's go sit down, the three of us, with your wife, and we'll talk about some things that involve her as well. Because what you often find is, once husband starts working on some things, that actually reshapes the home life in all kinds of other ways. The, the list of issues that all of us could probably draw up, which constitute areas where we could grow, are not separate things. They're all interconnected. If you've not prayed in six months, not read the Bible in three months and are constantly um, stroppy with your brothers, right? And you suddenly start, pre- you know, stroppy, sorry, that's an Englishism, uh, grumpy. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, Anglicism. And, and suddenly you start praying. You might find that it improves your relationships. So you get a hold of the tangible things first. Let's deal with them. When are you planning to pray every day? Oh, I don't know. Right, well, tell me a time. Specify it. Put it in your calendar. Let's do that. What are you going to pray? Don't know. Okay. Well, let's think of some prayers you can pray. Do that and try that for a month and then see if it doesn't affect other things. And it will. So, yeah, it's, it's great. Everything has to be done in that kind of way. And, and in marriage, again, it's you, you don't want a situation where it's, well, he's always doing this. Well, she never does that. And you wouldn't to be working together towards these things. Yeah, go ahead. That reminded me, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned a book a while ago about manhood or something that you really didn't like. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Mrs. Clackwell, remind me of the title. It's gone out of my mind. That's right. Oh, no. The, the one by Michael Foster. And... I, don't, I don't want to beat up other people's books. Look, if you, if you, if you want a great book, yeah, I know Mrs. Clackwell will just... Just go to her Facebook page. <laughs> uh, oh, my goodness. Um, look, if you want a great book about being a man, get Solomon Says by Mark Horn. Right? There are loads of... There's, I've, I read that in like an afternoon and then immediately started reading it again, but not before I'd ordered four more copies for all of my family. I know somebody who ordered like a dozen copies for their family and their friends and stuff. It's, it is extraordinarily good. Isn't it breathtaking? And I, I just think... Um, I, I don't want to beat, beat up some book. I, I think the, the one that you have in mind is, is slightly uh, immature and reactionary. And I get what it's trying to say. I, you know, I get that it's good to be... And I'm not just reacting to the title. I've read it, you know. I've read much of it as like a bear. <laughs> it's, it's, thanks. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on. Okay, so a couple more texts. Now, again, these are people who... Um, experience significant change. Who's mentioned in um, John 3, John 7, and John 19? Don't look in your Bibles. Who is it? Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Nicodemus, So John 3, he comes to Jesus at night. Is he coming secretively because he doesn't want anybody to know? 
Or is he coming because, like, he's busy, he's got a job? Or is he coming at night in John's Gospel, the time of darkness and uncertainty? Yes, all those things, probably, right? It's John's Gospel we're talking about. John 7, he's contradicting the entire Sanhedrin. And John uh, 19, he is um, only helping out with Joseph of Arimathea, working out how to bury Jesus. Clearly something has gone on in that man's head over that time. Um, And he was a very, very intellectually accomplished individual, a very powerful man, the teacher of Israel, he's described as in John 3. And Jesus humiliates him. You're the teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things. You're really stupid, aren't you? And he swallows his pride. I mean, there's a bunch of other things, I'm sure, but... Yeah, oh, this is embarrassing. The Nazarene carpenters show me up. Thank goodness this happened at night, you know. Um, swallowing his pride. And then 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 3, 8, 1 Timothy 1, 15. Those are just texts about Paul, the chief of sinners, who used to... You know, his job, which he took upon himself, was to persecute the church, and somehow he became the apostle to the Gentiles. So don't be telling me that significant growth isn't possible. I put that one in just to encourage you. Okay, so more pointedly, um, there are texts that indicate the possibility of a disappointing lack of growth or even a disturbing regression towards immaturity or even unbelief very very briefly because i don't want to get to these other texts before we finish today hebrews 5 is very interesting Uh, 11 to 14 we have much to say about this but it's hard to explain not because it's complicated you might think it's complicated given what he's talking about melchizedek and all that malarkey but because you're dull of hearing by this time, you ought to be teachers, but you need somebody to explain all this basic stuff again. Will you please get a grip on yourself? And one wonders whether the combination of the hostility they'd experienced from the Jewish synagogues and the paradigm shift, the effort required to rethink everything, was just too much for them at some points. That's really what's going on in Hebrews. Um, the writer of the Hebrews is reminding them, not urging them not to go back to their former life in Judaism because that's all obsolete and it's about to come to an end. All those sacrifices which are still going on, it's written before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, but it's, they're about to come to an end. Don't go back to all that stuff. But the, the, the emotional and spiritual and, and cognitive strain of rethinking everything is so great. They just don't seem to be as sharp in the their faith in the Messiah as they should be. And whoever wrote Hebrews is a bit irritated, frankly. You guys ought to be teachers. Useless. So come on. Pull yourselves together is basically the message. Um, And then worse than that, you know Galatians is an astonishing way to begin a letter, really. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not there is a different gospel, but you're, you know, you're, the thing that you're turning to is displacing the gospel. You're actually abandoning it. You're in the process of abandoning Jesus. Um, chapter 3, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? And it looks like 
again, it's, here it's false teaching. It's false teaching of a particular kind. It's false teaching which is offering them an opportunity to avoid the deeply socially uncomfortable experience of eating with Gentiles. It's not just they were being beset with false teaching that was talking about legalistic self-righteousness. That's not really a concern in Galatians. I know lots of people say it is. It's not. The issue is they wanted to go back to a pre-Christ-shaped faith in Yahweh, which left in place all the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles that they had come to seek so greatly. We don't want to hang around with all these dirty, smelly, you know, pork-eating Gentiles. Yeah. Don't do that, and that's exactly what um, uh, Paul highlights in chapter two, verse eleven. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He was clearly in the wrong. The NIV puts it. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And then all the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. They wanted the freedom of the gospel, but without being with socially all the other people whom the gospel had freed and even Barnabas like Barnabas the legendary not legendary in the sense of being a legend but the, the, the greatly regarded scholar was led astray and he fronted up to Peter for goodness sake in public said and how dare you, you you're a Jew, and you live like a Gentile, now you want to force Gentiles to fit in with you, otherwise you don't want anything to do with them. It's outrageous. So these people are in danger of being swept away by that. A more socially palatable form of their faith, perhaps. Um, and then Second Timothy 4, well, here's just one example. A truly tragic picture Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The world, it's literally this age. So it's probably a similar thing to the, the, um, the Galatian problem. But the, the echoes are perhaps more cultural and moral than salvation historic. They're probably a bit of both. He loved this world too much. So those are the obvious things, okay, that cause somebody to not grow in their faith or even to regress substantially. Now, we've got 12 minutes left. Let me try and scoot quickly through this. These are four texts, uh, each of which warrants lots of detailed explanation to, to pull out all the different nuances. But I really just want to highlight one thing from each of them. Um, so I'll do it as quickly as I can, and then I'll pause, and hopefully we'll have a few minutes for any questions you might have at the end. All, f all four of these texts, or, or sets of texts, highlights in different ways that God's sovereign grace in transforming us sits alongside an exhortation, an imperative that we are to strive and work and think and apply ourselves with diligence and energy and passion and enthusiasm to growing. And we don't ever, ever say to somebody, just pray about it. That, if you want, 
another way of encapsulating what I want to say for the next five minutes. Just pray about it is a mistake. At least when it comes to striving for growth in maturity and faithfulness. Because these texts highlight that we pray and strive. Philippians 2, very famously, another church with whom Paul has no or almost no gripes. So these guys are doing things well. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, drum roll, here's the key imperative, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's, can you see, it's, it's, you work precisely because it is God who is at work in you. No tension. It doesn't say work out your salvation, although it is God who is at work in you. There's no, it's not contra- contrastive or adversative. Um, it's causative. You strive because it is God who is at work in you. And the implication is, of course, that as we work, God will animate our striving. It turns out that the people who end up most godly are the people who strive for godliness. That's just what it says. Romans 6, which is becoming one of my favorite passages in, in the New Testament. Um, there's some competition, right? <laughs> you know, like Romans 8 for a start. Um, but the first four verses, um, uh, the argument is familiar to you. Um, we who were baptized into Jesus, verse 3, were baptized into his death. We were buried with him in order that we might be raised. Verse 5, we've been united with him in his death. We've died in Christ. Verse 6, we've been crucified with him. Uh, verse 7, we have died. Um, uh, uh, again and again and again in those first six, seven, eight verses, uh, Paul, Paul says in various ways that we have, our status has changed because of the death of Jesus. We've died. In the sense that, look closely, um, Uh, Verse 6, our old self was crucified, the old man, literally. It's that which is deserving of being put to death in us has been put to death already. And everyone cries, hallelujah, because it means that we don't have to do anything anymore in terms of striving for godliness, because, yeah, the sin has been put to death. The old man has been put to death, which is completely not what Paul says. So verse 11 is like the transition. So you must consider yourself dead to sin. There's a cognitive, a rethinking of your identity. And then verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin, but present yourselves to God. You see how the logic works. You've died, so rethink your identity and then reorient your life. And it's a very tactile image. My friend Andrew Satch from England, had, it's a wonderful way of putting this. It's like you're, you, instead of having your hands and your arms and your, your feet and your body and sort of saying, here, sin, have me, what you do is you offer your hands and the different parts of your body and so on to righteousness. So let's see how r- sin and righteousness are almost personified. You know, He's, Let's let righteousness use my hands and my mind and my tongue and my feet and so on. Uh, 2 Timothy 1, 
This is why um, preachers work at their sermons, even though they know that it's all um, a gift of the grace of God. Verse 6. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying of my ha- on of my hands. Well, look, Paul, is it a gift or not? The gift is, is that which, um, re- something that relates to his pastoral ministry, and probably given what we know of Timothy's personality and feelings of inadequacy, something to do with his public ministry. Um, and Paul says, well, you've got this gift of God, so fan it into flame. And my, again, I've, I've always think of my old mentor, Richard Koken, who taught me loads and loads and loads and loads of things about preaching. Um, when he was preaching well, which was most of the time, and he lamented when he wasn't because it was normally because he was so busy with other things, which is a shame. But when he was preaching well, he poured hours and hours into his preparation. And it looked so easy. He made it... It's like I've used the illustration of Roger Federer. You, know, you watch Roger play tennis and you think, man, I could do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it looks so natural and so easy and, I used to listen to Richard preach and just think, it looks so obvious. He makes it, of course, that's what it means. And, and he, he did that because he was very gifted and because he worked extremely hard. And Roger Federer, what does he do? Apart from sleeping 12 hours a day, he's always in the gym, always hitting tennis balls. <laughs> hitting tennis balls. That was pretty good reactions, wasn't it? Don't you think? <laughs> Don't get distracted. And then finally, Leviticus 19, Hebrews 12, um, 1 Peter 1. Uh, I won't even go through them all. But they say between them that um, we are to strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, but it is God who sanctifies. Be holy because I am holy and so on and so forth. Anyway, okay. Can you see then that what we've done, just to summarize and give you a minute or two for questions, um, there's a bunch of obvious things that we really need to watch out for, strive for. There's a bunch of things that we haven't yet labelled and identified that might be holding us back. And when we get to the point of trying to think what those things are, I don't want to hear anybody saying, yeah, but don't we just need to trust God? We don't just need to trust God. Repent and believe. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who's working you. And if, we, if we're willing to do that, um, I promise you the Spirit will be at work in you to transform you in remarkable ways. Okay, we've got a bit of time for any remaining questions or comments or thoughts. So hit me. Birdie, put a hand up. She's not really got a question. Oh. Um, Mr. Bennett, yes. I've been sitting here thinking about Paul, the, the rest of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Mm. The first one, at least. Maybe the second one, too. And in Acts 18, it says, he spent a whole year and a half there. Mm. You'd think that if any church would be on the ball, it would be Corinth. Yeah, yeah. It's really intriguing. Um, I mean, Corinth was quite a large community. It's a large town. Um probably multiple congregations, even though in one, in one city. Um, but you're onto something, Fraser, because um, there's, a, there's an extremely non-linear relationship between um, the amount of time the Apostle Paul puts into people and the maturity that he sees in them. 
And I think that in one sense, that's a, a microcosm of what we're thinking about today. How, how do we become a bit more like the Thessalonians who seem to need three sermons <laughs> and their, their world is turned upside down? How do we become a bit more like that? And a bit more like the Bereans and a bit more like Zacchaeus? Um, what, what might we need to, to, to instantiate in our lives to put us on that track towards more steady, stable growth? You can bet the Thessalonians weren't the finished article yet. I mean, he has to write two letters to sort out their doctrine of the last judgment and so on. But still, uh, beach Corinth and Galatia, goodness. So, yeah. Yeah, Mr. Bennett. Sometimes I think we might... I, I think about spiritual growth or maturity in Christ kind of like the description at the beginning of how technology and just our, the way our lives are. We try to do too many things at once. Mm. So with, a, with these kinds of ideas, you know, like 20 things might come to mind. Oh, oh this area, this area, this area. And, it, and instead of putting the other 17 to the side for a while yeah, yeah. and focusing on a few, we get overwhelmed and... And, um, yes. Maybe try to do too, even though we should be striving, we kind of strive to, in too many areas at once and then end up making no progress. Yes, no, I think that's, that's really wise. And it's one of the benefits of making a list because however long your list is, your list could be 50 pages, but it won't have, it won't be 10,000 pages. There'll be a whole bunch of things that you're doing, actually, you're doing great, whatever it is. But just by identifying a few things, um, yeah, it makes some progress. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, this is kind of related to that. Mm. I was looking at the list and wondering, in pastoral counseling, maybe you have somebody who comes to you for besetting sin, and the question is, well, why is it? Why are they not finding growth in that besetting sin or whatever? But so I'm, my question is say that the reason they're not able to get over this besetting sin is because of the besetting sin mm -hmm. is cyclical. And all these yes, things yes, on yes. this list are kind of, well, to, to some degree are symptoms. Yep. And so to say like, oh, this symptom is not getting better because of this other symptom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is yeah. it proper to think of this as like it's a holistic type of view yes. and all these things need to be improved for all of them to get better at the same time? Or is it more that... There are these symptoms, but then there are other things that are more core issues. Yeah. And you figure out the core issues first and then move on to the... I, I think um, there's, a, there's a kind of attractiveness to the idea of thinking of certain things at the core and then other things being peripheral. Intuitively, you want to say, well, look, um, you want to go to church and read your Bible and pray and trust Jesus, and those are the core things. And then these other things will kind of hang off that. Now, I, I don't want to dispute that as a, as a heuristic or conceptual framework, but it's just really interesting to me that I've noticed it in my own life, if I tackle one seemingly trivial issue, it actually changes my perspective on lots of other things. So I... I think we are more complex than we realize. So just to take a, just take a, a, a really simple issue, right? And this isn't even really to do with godliness, but it's, it illustrates the point. For me, I eat junk food if I'm not exercising. 
but if I've just been exercising, I don't want to eat a hamburger and like a gallon of soda. I want to eat something kind of healthy. I, I don't know. That might just be me, but it illustrates the point that we're kind of interconnected. Now, if somebody's praying, I bet they're reading their Bible. And if they're praying, I bet they, it's quite hard to just sort of stop praying and then suddenly shout at the kids. And if they're sitting down to eat with the family once a day, it's much more likely that they're actually going to be um, able to have some kind of conversation about, hey, how, how's my daughter's Bible reading going? And you'll start to bring to the surface tension between your children if it's there. And all these things start to relate to each other. So though the, the conceptual idea of some core things and then peripheral things is, is not wrong... I almost don't mind where we start. <laughs> and so the things to start with, I think, it, for all of us, would just be, well, what's the easiest thing to do? Let's, let's do that. And then you might then come back in a month and see if some of the other things have fixed themselves. Mental health things are the hardest to deal with. Well, how, how do you deal with, okay, I feel anxious. I mean, <laughs> I, what, but what can you get a handle on? Well, a whole bunch of things about your life, your routine, your expectations, your relationships, your food, the things you do when you're resting, how you go about your work. Deal with them, and then we'll go and see a, a psychologist if you've still got big anxiety issues. Let's do the simple things first. And three minutes over, but that's kind of... Three minutes is within tolerance for people's watches being different. All right, enough. Thank you all of you, um, and for those of you at home, your participation as well. Let's pray, and then we will conclude. Father in heaven, we turn to you again now through our Lord Jesus Christ and recall his perfection, his perfect full maturity as a man. How that in ways we can't even imagine or describe everything he did to interact with the world in which he was placed and the people who met him was perfectly wise and good and gracious and good-humoured and uh, articulate and proportioned and how he never wasted a moment but never stressed about uh, not doing enough and we long, Heavenly Father, to be more like him so that in the big things at the core of our being, if as it were, and in all the small areas of our lives, we are growing in faithfulness. And we ask that you'd help us to reflect on these matters as we explore this topic in more detail, such that the end result is increasing joy and faithfulness in Christ for all of us, and therefore for many others in the future. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>